listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. Before we dive into the scripture today, I'm going to take a minute this morning to brag on my cousins. I got a younger cousin. He's about nine years younger than me. His name is Rand. And uh, Rand, I think if anybody's going to have a book ever written about his life, it's probably going to be my cousin, Rand Wasson. Are you okay? She acted it and turned Oh. Yeah. Rand was a championship golfer in college. And I thought he was going to go pro. I mean, he was, he was like winning all these tournaments in college. But instead of going pro, he became a golf, uh, uh, he became a doctor. And he graduated medical school, finished his residency, and he, now he's working as a doctor at a hospital in Tennessee. Married to a beautiful lawyer named Casey. And uh, I figure one day he's probably going to win the Masters and cure cancer in the same week. And then someone's going to write a book about it. It's all right. We've got to figure it out. <laughs> One day, Rand's probably going to win the Masters and cure cancer in the same week, and then somebody's going to write a book about it. And if you bought the autobio or the biography of my cousin Rand and opened it up and read it, you probably wouldn't expect it to start out with a chapter about his fat preacher cousin in South Georgia. <laughs> right? You probably wouldn't expect that. But that's kind of what happens in the Bible, isn't it? You get a chapter on Jesus' birth, or you get a chapter on Jesus' genealogy, and then a chapter on Jesus' birth, and they said, I wonder what Jesus' childhood was like. We're not going to tell you. Instead, we're going to spend a chapter talking about his cousin. And you think, well, maybe this cousin will be important to the story later. Nope. He gets beheaded a few chapters later, and you never hear from him again. So Why? Why in the world, in a biography about Jesus, does the author skip over Jesus' whole childhood to talk for a long time about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist? If it was me writing the book, I probably would talk about Jesus and a little less about John the Baptist. We're going to talk about that today. So we're in Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him. In all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw the many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to save yourselves. We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. 
Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is coming more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. So it has always kind of baffled me why the writers of the gospel, and it happens in every gospel, um, start out with John the Baptist instead of starting out with Jesus. But I think the reason why they do it is summed up in this, this passage about the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord for the people of God. He was part of the advanced team that's going in. Now, there are, are different kinds of advanced teams that you have in modern day. There are advanced team in politics. If a politician is going to go to give a speech, they send an advanced team to the venue to set up the microphone and do the sound check and make sure all the security is right before the politician ever gets there. And that way, the, the site will be prepared. In the military, they have an advanced team before they go onto a mission. They go out and do reconnaissance and scouting and make sure that the site is okay before the mission starts. John the Baptist was an advanced team for Jesus. God was sending him in there to prepare the site where the mission was going to take place, the mission of reconciliation to the older world. But why would Jesus need an advanced team? Think about this. Jesus broke a lot of expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. Right? If people expected a military conqueror to come in and rescue the people from Rome, and Jesus came in as a suffering servant, that is an expectation that is broken. I think God sent John as like an old school prophet. John brings a lot of, of comparisons to Elijah a lot of times because John was in the, in the mode of Elijah for his ministry. He acted like you would expect a prophet to act. He spoke like you would expect a prophet to speak. He dressed weird like you would expect a prophet to dress. They looked at him and said, yep, that guy's a prophet. So in order to kind of soften the way for a Messiah who would not conform to people's expectations, God sent them a prophet who did conform to their expectations so they could start to listen, so those gears could start to get turning. Because not only, you know, last week we talked about how we have to prepare ourselves for God to move. But not only are we preparing for God, God is doing some preparing too. God is preparing us for himself to move. Not only did the people need to prepare for the incarnation and ministry of Jesus, God was preparing them for Jesus' ministry. That's why God, Jesus needed an advanced team. That's why Jesus needed a prophet to come. Because God needed to prepare the way to make the path straight for the coming of the Lord. Now there is a wonderful Wesleyan term 
that we use in United Methodist Church and Methodist churches all over the world to talk about the things that God does to prepare us for, for Jesus. And that term is called prevenient grace. John Wesley called it preventing grace, but we kind of have morphed that into prevenient grace. They really mean the same thing. John Wesley wrote that prevenient grace elicits the first wish to please God, the first dawn of light concerning his will, the, the first slight transient conviction of having sinned against him. I think John the Baptist is an excellent example of prevenient grace at work in the world. We can see how John typified prevenient grace to get the people of God ready for Jesus in a number of ways. First of all, we see that John showed prevenient grace in, in clearing a path for Jesus. You know, some people just aren't receptive to the gospel. Some people just aren't willing or aren't ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe they got burned at church when they were younger and someone was mean to them or awful to them or, or whatever. And they've internalized some untrue things about God that are just hard to overcome. They need some paths cleared for Jesus to be able to move in their heart. They need some grace to be received before they can get saved. Maybe they just don't have any kind of reference point for the gospel. They don't know anything about Jesus. They need to be taught some things. They need to learn some lessons before they can hear the gospel about Jesus. That's God at work in their lives before they get saved. That's provenient grace. It's all provenient grace is all the grace that we receive before we ever give anything back to God. Before we ever believe, we recognize that God's in our work giving us grace. That's why it's important for us to be a good witness all the time. My mama used to say, you might be the only person, Jesus, that that person gets to see. You might be the only witness to Jesus that, that a person in your life ever gets to see. And if you're a jerk to that person, then they're going to think that Jesus is a jerk too. I think my mom was right about that. That's why I get mad when I see someone with a Jesus fish on their car cut someone off in traffic, you know what I mean? Because I'm like, oh no, that person that got cut off, they think that's what Jesus is like. If you're gonna, if you're gonna wear a Jesus fish on your car, you gotta back it up with some good driving. I mean, that's just what I think. Because we, are a part of preparing the way. We can be a part of God's prevenient grace for people. The way that God is, is blessing them before they ever come to faith. Or we could be a part of the clutter that Jesus needs to clear away in order to get to them. That can be, a, that's a choice that we get to have. John the Baptist showed prevenient grace by baptizing people. Now think about this. John the Baptist went around baptizing people before Jesus' public ministry ever started. Which means that he wasn't baptizing them into the Christian faith because Jesus hadn't died and risen again yet. So what did his baptism signify? I think that, that John the Baptist's baptism signified the prevenient grace that God had for his people. 
It's the kind of logic that also works in infant baptism. This is why we baptize infants in the United Methodist Church. It's because we see baptism sacramentally. And what this means is that we believe that God is the main one doing the acting. There's kind of two different ways to view communion and baptism, which are our sacraments. We can view ourselves as the primary actor, and God is the recipient of the action. So I am coming to be baptized because I am declaring to all of you that I believe in Jesus, and God is receiving this declaration and being good to me. Or we can view it as a sacrament where God is the one doing the action and I am the one receiving the action. When I go to be baptized, God is saying, I accept this person into my family. And the person being baptized is receiving the acceptance of God. That's what we believe in the Methodist Church, that, that baptism is a sacrament, that we are the ones receiving the acceptance of God in baptism which is why we can baptize babies before they come to faith. Because, of course, God has accepted this baby. You know, I grew up as a Baptist, and I didn't believe in infant baptism for the longest time. In fact, when Ruth got baptized, I, didn't, I wasn't on board yet. I, I told Sarah Beth that it was going to be a moist dedication. Um, don't tell the Board of Ordinary Ministry I said that. I'll probably get in trouble. Yeah, but you don't believe it now. <laughs> but I don't believe it now because... When Ruth got baptized, the pastor explained the sacramental nature of baptism in such a way that I was like, duh, of course God accepts this beautiful daughter. Of course God accepts Ruth into his family. She's wonderful. Who wouldn't accept this baby into their family? God is the one accepting the person in baptism. Now, that doesn't mean that that kid is automatically saved. There will come a time when that kid is going to have to choose whether or not they believe. They can live into their baptism or they can reject their baptism. But that's their choice. As far as God's choice, it's already been made. God has accepted the person being baptized. He can give them the grace to walk away if that's their choice, but as far as God's concerned, he is accepting, he is loving, and he brings that person into their family. God has already made the decision to accept the child, and that's where we baptize infants. And so, so John's act of baptizing people before there was ever a cross and before there was ever a resurrection is a sign to me that prevenient grace was at work in the people of God in that place. Because God was accepting people into his family before the sacrifice was ever made. And that's beautiful to me. And the third way that I think that John showed provenient grace in his ministry was through preaching repentance. Y'all, I was angry this week. I was so angry because of the, um, the hoax of the school shootings in Georgia. I just, on Wednesday, I could barely focus on anything because I was so mad that they put all of us through that. Man, what kind of person could do that? What kind of a sicko would make that many parents worry over the whole state? 
And it just it reminded me, there are some really sick people in the world, right? I generally think of repentance as something that someone has to do in order to receive grace from God. First we repent, and then God gives us grace, right? That's kind of what we, we think of. But after that experience and, and reflecting on this this passage where, where John is crying out for people to repent, I realized that this call to repentance is grace in and of itself because it gives us the opportunity to opt out of sinful living, of the patterns of destruction that sin gives us. <clears throat> Imagine if you were destined to always live out of your worst instincts, that if you didn't have a, an option to repent, if you didn't have the option to live right, if all you had were you were just a cat swung around by the tail of your sinful nature, what would the world be like if all of us were like that? If all of us were constantly causing that kind of chaos in the world? The only reason we're not always like that is because of the grace of God. There but for the grace of God go we. The grace of God allowed us to live into repentance. The grace of God allowed us to choose right. The grace of God showed us the error of our ways and gave us the power to live different. Repentance and the call to repentance is prevenient grace. The fact that everybody in the world isn't always being awful is prevenient grace. Because of the fallen nature of humanity, God allows us to act right even before we believe, and even after we believe. The fact that we're not all doing terrible stuff all the time is evidence that prevenient grace is at work in our world. The call to repentance <clears throat> is grace. And it kind of blows my mind sometimes when I think about prevenient grace that, that everybody I come across, every cashier that waits, that every waiter that serves me, every rude motorist on the road, every annoying family member I've got, all of those people are a recipient of an orchestrated campaign by God and the Holy Spirit to show them that God loves them and God wants to save them. The Holy Spirit is working in a myriad of ways through God's prevenient grace to love every single person you come across. Someone does not have to walk through the doors of church ever in their life to be a recipient of the grace of God. Everybody is receiving God's grace. Because the Holy Spirit, like John was Jesus' advanced team, the Holy Spirit is God's advanced team out in the world. He's out there working in people's lives, sowing the seeds of the gospel in people's hearts so that they will be, paths will be cleared for them to believe. And there's some people who sow the seeds and some people that reap the harvest, but both kinds of folks are needed. So my question for you this morning is, are there people in your life that need the grace of God? Maybe they don't believe yet, 
but is there someone who might just want to hear about the grace of God for them, whether they respond to it or not? How could our acts of kindness and solidarity and help and love show those people that Jesus loves them enough to go to the cross for them? And the wonderful thing about provenient grace is that we get to put grace out in the world and let Jesus be the one in charge of reaping the harvest. That's what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming more powerful than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather the wheat from the granary, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is the one that's going to separate the wheat and the chaff. We're just the ones sowing the grace. So let's be grace-filled to everybody we come across today. You never know who might be a recipient of God's prevenient grace because of something that you do this week. You never know what, what difference that might make in someone's life. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your grace that is at work in so many ways. Give us more of you today, Father. Help us to see that you are behind the scenes working on people in our neighborhoods and our jobs, that we pass on the street, that you're doing these good things for people. You're showing them your grace your your spirit is our advanced team and is working in people's lives before they even recognize that it's you show us where that's happening and help us to be a part of that for the good of your glory for your kingdom in your name i pray amen